0: welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. Please visit MediaRoots.org for more information about our organization. The following is an exclusive Media Roots interview with David Swanson. David's the co-author of the 35 articles of impeachment and the case for prosecuting George W. Bush. He was press secretary for Dennis Kucinich's 2004 presidential campaign and is the co-founder of AfterDowningStreet.org, creator of ConvictBushCheney.org, and Washington Director of Democrats.com, a board member of Progressive Democrats of America, the Backbone Campaign, and Voters for Peace, and a member of the Legislative Working Group of United for Peace and Justice. He has written two best-selling books, Daybreak, Undoing the Imperial Presidency and Forming a More Perfect Union, and War is a Lie. Here is the interview with David Swanson. Thanks so much for taking the time, David. I'm really excited to talk sure. to you. Sure. Sure. So I know you're a busy man. Let's just get started. Uh, why don't we start by just you telling our audience um, who you are, a little bit about your professional background, and how you got politically awakened.
1: Um, well, I don't, I don't know a, sh- a quick, snappy <laughs> answer for that, but I, uh, I, I guess have been more increasingly involved in political activism for the past uh, uh, decade or more, and uh, I, I. Got a master's degree in philosophy uh, from the University of Virginia here in Charlottesville. And, you know, that and a dollar, you can get a bus ride. That's about it. And <laughs> I went into newspaper reporting, uh, worked at newspapers here in Virginia, and uh, ended up on the on the PR side of things, working for a for a group called Acorn that, uh, may it rest in peace, and uh, and then working for Congressman Kucinich's presidential campaign uh, six years ago, and working for the labor movement. And for the past six or seven years, I've mostly been working for the peace movement, for for peace groups, for websites, for blogs, uh, giving speeches, writing books, writing articles, uh, writing email alerts, uh, and uh, otherwise working on campaigns that involve uh, increased democracy and participation and transparency and, and peace and social justice.
0: Wonderful. Uh, was there a certain catalyst to get you involved, you know, coming from a philosophy background, it seems like an interesting leap. Is it just your history of just kind of working as a reporter and getting more involved in, in the foreign policy side and just getting more passionate about peace and anti-war activism through that?
1: Well, my reporting work was never with foreign policy. Um, I, I never, I, I never liked wars. I always favored peace. I always sort of liked it when I was taught "Thou shalt not kill," and had troubles when I was otherwise taught "Thou shalt glorify the military." And uh, but I, you know, and I, protest, I went to protests of the the first Gulf War. You know, but I never. Uh, became a part of the, the peace movement uh, in a serious way, professionally or volunteering, until uh, uh, until Iraq. And uh, I guess I, I got into philosophy because I was interested in ethics and was interested in what we should do and how we should determine what we should do and how we can convince everyone else to do better. And, uh, and I guess I went from there to to engagement in... The biggest things we're doing wrong: uh, destroying our planet and, and engaging in, in, in major warfare. And uh, uh, and I, I think I, I became involved in in being an activist through through campaigns around domestic injustice in our criminal justice system and low wages at the university where I was and the need for living wage standards. Um, but I but I ended up uh, on on war and peace primarily. And I, I think that, that made sense for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I saw a speech that you gave um, when you and Kucinich drafted the 35 Articles of Impeachment against George W. Bush. Um, you, and I totally agreed with your sentiment at the time. You said it would be, I, I, I'm not quoting it directly, but you said something along the lines of it would be a dangerous precedent to set if we didn't impeach. And investigate. What do you think now? What precedent has been set for us never investigating or impeaching the the war criminals from the Bush administration?
1: Well, we've established that many actions that were crimes and abuses are now law. You know, as law such as it is today. Um, you know that we have an executive order that counts as law from the current president, uh, saying you can lock up anybody without any due process. You can just. Kidnap them and and throw away the key, uh, and that wouldn't have happened if Bush and Cheney and that gang hadn't engaged in that that proce- uh, that procedure so extensively, and it become known and become defended and then become respectable. Um, but it, it's it's a process, so you 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 go from uh, these guys, you know, torturing to the current president assassinating and. Maintaining that power to torture, but going beyond it and say, ah, "Well, I can assassinate Americans." Uh, you go from you know years of depicting Middle Eastern uh, and Arabic-speaking, uh, dark-skinned Muslims as subhuman monsters who have to be you know handcuffed and bags put over their heads, and you know softening people up for the idea of abusing certain people's rights. Uh, and you go quickly to to uh, extending those abuses to uh, to everyone, including Americans. Uh, and and a lot of people get fooled by the by the superficial display of democracy, by the, this idea that even though our government in Washington goes against majority opinion on almost everything, mm-hmm. uh, and even though laws are only applied to those. Uh, out of positions of power. Uh, We have this ability to choose, and we can choose that team or the other team. And for most people, one of the two teams is good and the other evil. And uh, and so we miss the fact that throughout these transitions from Republicans to Democrats to Republicans, the president keeps acquiring more and more power, and Congress and the courts and the people keep losing more and more power.
2: David, um, my name is Robbie by the way i'm Abby's co-host. Um, can you hear me okay on the mic? yeah, I can okay um, yeah, I just wanted to to ask a question um, on something you just said. Uh, you said that basically that the that the, that the way that we treat these so called terrorists can basically encompass anybody you know who falls under a certain criteria of activism or dissent against the government. Um, and so, what would you say to people who, who are like, well, you know, these laws don't affect me. You know, they only affect you know people who are doing these things. Um, you know, they kind of they kind of take a distanced approach from it and, and act like that that it's never going to have any effect on them personally. What do you have to say to those kind of people?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Uh, one is that I don't believe it for a minute that most Americans uh, are are that. Uh, self-centered and, and selfish and cruel and murderous. Uh, I mean, to say, I just don't care that innocent people are being locked up for life and committing suicide and, and having their doors kicked in and their children taken away and bombs dropped on their roofs. It just doesn't affect me because, you know, unless I see a difference in my paycheck or in my the choices of foods at my supermarket, it doesn't affect me. I don't believe it for a minute. You know, the, the reason they have to sell these wars as humanitarian acts of philanthropy, and they can't just sell them the way they used to as, as ways to kill the evil beings in the other place, uh, is because too many people don't have that selfish attitude. But you know, for those who do, you have to understand that there's only one planet. Uh, we destroy it, and we destroy it for all of us. Uh, and that these wars make us less safe, not more safe. We've had a predictable increase in global terrorism throughout the global war on terrorism. Uh, This is where all of our money is going. We are bankrupting our government and destroying our economy. Uh, We are destroying our environment. Uh, We are stripping away our civil liberties and our civil rights uh, on the basis of... This endless warfare, the, the fear that drives our politics, uh, drives it to bad places for all of us so that you can take a guy with a name you can't, you can't pronounce and, and doesn't look like anybody you've ever met and lock him up in Guantanamo and you say, oh, well, that's okay. That's not me. And, and then you take an American like Alaki living in in Yemen. And you say, well, we can assassinate him because he's an American, but he's a Muslim and he lives abroad. We can assassinate him. And then that's okay. Then you take uh, an American soldier who looks like your next door neighbor, a kid named Bradley Manning, and you lock him in a six by 12 cell and force him to stand at attention naked. Uh, And you say, oh, well, that's okay. Because even though the president campaigned that he would make heroes out of whistleblowers, This guy was a whistleblower and he revealed secrets and we should be we should be permitted to be kept in the dark and not informed what our government is doing. We don't want to know. uh, So that's okay. It's just him, not me. But it's not. It's not just him. And we don't know the list of the Americans targeted for assassination. They haven't shown us the whole list. Who knows who's on it?
0: Right. I think it also goes along with the draconian curtailment of our civil liberties and people, this warrantless wiretapping and all of the things that have happened, the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, all these things that, you know, Bush famously said, unless Al-Qaeda is calling you, you don't have anything to worry about. And I think that that's more in line with just people thinking that those kind of things don't affect them here, when in reality we see, you know, raids of anti-war activist houses all the time. Um, this, guy was, this guy's house was raided just because he tweeted the police coordinates of, of a protest that was going on. So... It definitely affects everyone, and, and it's it's you know it's far-reaching, and you shouldn't be personally affected to know that these are your brothers and sisters around the world who are affected by our foreign policy as well. Um, David, r- correct me if I'm wrong, but did you say that you voted for Obama? In one interview that I saw,
1: uh, I did. Yeah. Yes. Um, I didn't. Uh I didn't vote for Obama thinking it would uh, change anything. I didn't vote for Obama thinking he was secretly pretending to be worse and he would do better once he got elected. Uh, I didn't vote for Obama, you know, without pinching my nose really, really hard. Um, And I explained uh, at the time that, you know, he was worse than either of the candidates you know, eight or 12 years before, that we're on a mm-hmm. a, a losing path with this lesser evilism. Uh, and, and yet I didn't want McCain, and I wanted Virginia, where I live, to vote for the less racist candidate for the first time ever in the history of Virginia mm-hmm. and for it to be a black man. I thought that that was a useful thing. Uh, and yes, Obama has turned out to be even worse than I thought he would be, uh... and i certainly will not vote for him again uh... And, and you know unless he radically changes in the next uh... two years here a year and a half but uh... i, I think that it, it's it's always a, a difficult choice to make whether to you know to push an actually good candidate uh... who's not going to win or to or to do the lesser evil thing um, but uh... It just seems so
0: interesting coming from a person with such strong tenets of, of anti-war, you know, philosophy. Um, you know, and, and like you said in that interview that I watched, you said we knew who Obama was as a candidate. He wasn't hiding from the fact that he was going to expand the Afghanistan war, and he was talking about Pakistan back then. So it, it is an interesting thing, and I, and I totally hear you. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's funny that we, we get sucked into that.
1: Well, in, in my defense, you know, I said at the time and have said for years, I consider, you know, the two minutes of voting uh, to be worth two minutes. And I don't, <laughs> I don't quite agree with our obsession of, you know, obsessing over those two minutes for the four years prior and the four years after, when most of what we have to do as activists and citizens is outside of elections. We have to do what we're doing here, communicating. We have to do organizing. Right. We have to do building of resistance. We have to go to Washington, D.C., and shut down that machine the way the people uh, of Cairo, Egypt did, uh, regardless of what face is on uh, the position. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, it can't just be about that. Um, right. And but, I,
0: think, I think it goes along with a lot of people become really disempowered after the elections, um, because they put so much hype and hope into this candidate, and, and really, we can't be looking for change at the federal level, like you're saying. Um, what, what, you know, as as such a, you, you've been embedded in the anti-war movement for so long. We just sat down with Cindy Sheehan the other week, and we were talking to her about how she, you know, the anti-war movement kind of used her, and spit her out. Um, what do you see has happened? Do you think that the Obama presidency and just this whole administration? in general, has it siphoned a lot of the energy, um, or has it crippled the anti-war movement in any way that you've seen as someone who's been pushing and fighting this whole time?
1: Well, no question. I mean, it was 95% shut down uh, the minute that Obama was elected. Um, There's no question. And uh, that's something that many of us uh, fervently opposed and denounced. I mean, Mm -hmm. even if you believed that there was going to be a better chance for peace for a peace movement, for for peaceful policies out of our government, then that was the moment in which to invest in the peace movement, to push yeah. the government to make those things happen that you now believed might be possible, to take the opposite approach and to say, oh, well, now that everything isn't hopeless, we'll shut down our movement and, and go away so we don't risk accomplishing anything. That's crazy. It's backwards. <laughs> it's, it's upside down. I, I mean, it was... You know, in in a certain sense, you know, all of Obama's rallies. He said, "I'll end the war. I'll end the war. Take it to the bank. I'm going to end the war. I'm for ending the mar- the mentality that allows wars and so forth." Uh, and, and so, you were sending a message in a way to the world uh, to, to those with the very minimal uh, information about the campaign. That you don't, didn't want a crazy guy like McCain who sings songs about bombing other countries. You wanted this guy who was going to end wars. But, but yes, if you looked at what he was saying in detail, he wanted a bigger military. He wanted a bigger war in Afghanistan. He wanted to use drones as warfare and so forth. Uh, and, and you knew that was coming. Uh, and so whether you thought that that off was you know a, a teeny step in the right direction or a big one or whatever. To, to then shut down activism and, and say we aren't going to push for the things we want anymore because we are going to represent our – we're going to be the servants of our public servant instead of the other way around, uh, it, it, it's, just, it, it's just poisonous uh, and has been for two and a half years.
2: But Just to touch on something you, you just said about um, you know people were very enamored of him um, when he said he's going to end the wars and, and so on. Um, what, do, what do you have to say to people who still seem like wh- when you said you voted for Obama, you were, you were holding your nose and, and you knew a lot of these things going into it. Um, but a lot of people were kind of were sucked in and, and essentially hypnotized by his campaign rhetoric. And, and even now, um, I find a lot of his supporters will say things like, well, he did end the war. Um, he is taking a, us out of Afghanistan. He wants to close Gitmo. It's like, no matter what he does, I mean, just like the W supporters um, from 2001, you know, 2000 until 2008, it seems like, wh- you know, what does it take for them to actually admit, you know what, he did trick me, um, I was wrong, you know, to a certain degree, and, um, you know, I'm not going to support him like I did last time. Like, what, what do you think it would take for people to get there, and what do you have to say to um, people who latch on to those things?
1: well first of all this is not election day this isn't even election year and so the idea of supporting a public official or opposing a public official uh, I think is the wrong idea I mean it's not a reality show we're not choosing who stays on the island it's, we're not voting prom king uh, I mean we're dealing with our government and there are going to be millions of things that our government does wrong and maybe even some thousands of things our government does right uh, and so we ought to be applying As much pressure, positive and negative, as we can, uh, to everyone in our government uh, to get what we want. uh, So, what what our majority of the public wants, what peace and justice require, Uh, and so we don't have to come to the decision that oh, I thought Obama was was worthy of worship, and now I think he's Satan. You know, we we have to sort of come to an understanding that unless. We get power into the hands of Congress, and then Congress under the control of the people, and the people awaken independent of of this inversion of representative democracy, where we take instructions from them, uh, you know, we're done for. Um, and— you know I mean you can you can give people facts you you know Obama never was interested in closing Guantanamo he wanted to move it to Illinois which does nothing for human rights (laughs) I mean at best you know uh, the biggest I think difference it would have made is that you would have had hundreds of people in Illinois die of heart attacks you know which is what you would have had if you put uh, bin Laden on trial in the United States Uh, you know and so you have murder and murder accepted and cheered for in the streets, uh, which if that had happened with a Republican, uh, would have been denounced by every progressive uh, voice in the country, Um, and so now we're at a point where you have legislation coming up next week in Congress uh, that would give President Obama and all future presidents unlimited ability to launch wars without Congress right? wow. this, is, this is something that Obama has done uh, you know, with Libya in a major way but in some 75 countries around the world we have wars going on that are not authorized by the 2001 authorization to use military force because they're not tied to 9-11 uh, and, and they're absolutely unconstitutional. Uh, and you have the Republicans in Congress, uh, Buck McKeon in the House and John McCain in the Senate, pushing the, this legislation in the defense authorization bill that would allow presidents, Obama and anybody who comes after him, to to effectively launch any war they want, any time, without Congress, without limit against nations, organizations, or individuals, uh, and to imprison anyone any time in any way. I mean, this is current practice but this legislates it and these are the republicans who on this superficial level pretend not to know if he's a muslim or was born in this mm. country or came from a from a, a space alien ufo or you know it, uh, when it comes to the major issues like this there is complete bipartisan harmony uh... so extensive that it that we probably won't survive it and uh, and you hear nothing from the Tea Partiers about the Republicans in Congress putting a crown on Obama's head. And you hear nothing from the, the Obama supporters uh, about empowering every future president, including the Republican we're likely to have in two or six years, to launch wars without limit.
0: Right. It's just these issues that just serve as a distraction to keep us pitting against each other when, in reality, we should be unifying against the plutocrats. I mean, th- these these corporate persons um, that are controlling, you've talked extensively about the lobbying system and how we don't have true representation as long as these people are being bought and sold in Congress. Let's talk a little bit about War is a Lie, David. Um, could you go over the basic premise of the book for our, for our listeners?
1: Well, I was you know, kind of upset with this idea that was taking some traction that the Iraq war was different because for the first time ever, a president had sold a war on the basis of lies. Uh, and uh, I, I knew enough to know that wasn't quite right, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't know if there might have been a war somewhere, someplace that wasn't quite based on lies. Uh, and yet the more I looked, the more the Iraq war seemed absolutely typical you know i mean we the, the first gulf war the the babies taken out of incubators and left on the cold floor that never happened the mm. the gulf of tonkin incident in vietnam that never happened the uh the, you know the, the the lies by both wilson and roosevelt about germany uh unprovoked attacking innocent ships that helped get us into two world wars the uh the, you know the the apparent attack uh by South Korea on the north that was sold to us as the north on the south just as you know Mexico supposedly attacked us when we attacked Mexico and stole half their country the the the, the USS maine in in Havana Cuba that we were told Spain had blown up and there was no evidence and never has been uh, and and so I, I I looked at all the us wars and other wars in other countries uh, and the history of, of war over the past millennia uh... And, and found certain patterns of types of lies that are used to start wars and others that are used to keep them going and others that are used to make them look good after the fact that in some cases you know didn't come up didn't get mentioned at all until the wars were were in the past uh... and and, and so I, I started to uh, to put a case together that if we if we understood that wars are always based on lies. We wouldn't need the machinery around in case a good war might come up next month. Uh, and that, you know, we could cut back our military by 85% and still have the world's largest uh, right. and, and put all of that money to good use uh, and, and then think about cutting it back some more because mm-hmm. we don't we don't actually have the likelihood or even the possibility of a good war uh coming up any time in the future.
0: And what parallels do you see of the rhetoric? Um, We see a lot of parallels in the the instigation of these wars and the events that happened to that were the catalyst for these wars. What about the rhetoric and on the federal level, you know, do you see any similarities between, let's say, World War II, Vietnam War, and, and today?
1: Yeah, well, I you know I could have gone chronologically through each war in the book, uh, mm. and it would have gotten very repetitive. Instead, I went with chapters based on types of lies. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the first chapter is called "Wars are not fought against evil." Y- you know, there's not th- these evil demons, these dictators, and these evil races and religions that that we're told can only be addressed with warfare. Um, that's not the case. Uh, there, are, there are certainly are evil actions uh in the world and and evil dictators all around the world uh and often we're supporting them and arming them up until we switch sides and need a war against them but but they they don't justify war and we are are lied to about them and uh and chapter two wars are not launched in defense you know this has gotten to the point where we go halfway around the globe and attack unarmed impoverished nations in defense we call it defensive. Uh, number, chapter three: Wars are not waged out of generosity. You know, this is this is very relevant with with Libya. I mean, it sounds crazy, sure, right? Sure. That wars would be humanitarian. Okay. But this is how Clinton sold Yugoslavia. This is how Bush the first sold the first Gulf War. It wasn't to kill the evil Iraqis so much as to help the poor Kuwaitis. Uh, and we had to go into Libya two months ago to to prevent people from being killed. Right. You know, and never mind that it immediately became a war that had nothing to do with with those questionable claims to begin with. Never mind that, you know, we told Saudi Arabia to go kill civilians in Bahrain as long as they would support our effort to save the civilians in Libya. Never mind Mm -hmm. all the hypocrisy and what it's turned into. That gets the war going. And then you use other justifications to keep it going. You, you know, as, as we go past the 60 day mark here and the war becomes even more unconstitutional and illegal uh, than before, uh, people will just use different reasons to keep it going. And, and certainly you see this with, with all of the past wars that, uh, that you named. Uh, and, you know, we really got the escalation in Vietnam because there were floods, and we used the, the excuse of natural disaster to send in troops. You know, nobody around the world should accept U.S. military troops when they have a natural disaster, yeah. because then they have two disasters.
0: Yeah, and then it seems like once the troops are in, well, it's like, well, we can't pull out now. It's like, that's the perfect age-old excuse to just leave our troops in there for inde- indefinitely. It's like, well, what are we going to do? What's your solution? It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, come on, we can we can work together. Right. So awesome. we
1: can't abandon we can't abandon the poor people, right? It's as if I, I broke into your house at night mm-hmm. and smashed up all the furniture and killed some of your family, and then I have a moral obligation <laughs> to stay and spend the night. Right? I can't abandon you now. I, I I must I you know, you know, rather than <laughs> I should get the hell out, walk down the street to the police station and turn myself in. <laughs> right. No, I it would be reckless and immoral and irresponsible to to leave anytime soon. I have to be as careful getting out as I was careless getting in, as, you know, candidate Obama said over and over and over again.
2: Right. It's, it's one of those age-old pieces of propaganda that, that's similar to, you know, the propaganda they used um, during the Vietnam War um, for the domino effect. And now it seems like the, the modern version of that is, well, we have to fight the terrorists over there so we don't fight them here, you know. Um, I mean, do you see a lot of parallels between kind of that domino effect rhetoric and, and what we t- how we talk about t- fighting terrorists overseas now?
1: Yeah, I think in some ways the, you know, al-Qaeda and the terrorist threat uh, is, is even better uh, as propaganda
2: oh, than, the so- mm-hmm. than the Soviet mm-hmm. threat.
1: It's more you know, open-ended and, for sure. It, it, yeah, exactly. You can never prove that it's gone away, uh, you know, which is why this, this legislation I was mentioning, this this section that's in the this, the Defense Authorization uh, Act of, of next year, uh, it, it says, you know, effectively that presidents can attack anyone they like as part of this global war on terrorism, which means it can keep going as long as presidents want it to keep going, because you'll never prove that, like the Soviet Union, the, the terrorism went away, right? Anything that, mm-hmm. that anyone does in, in violent resistance to uh, U.S. goals around the world is by definition terrorism.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's
1: always going to be some of that. Uh, and, and so this is permanent. Well, Plus, it's got religion, it's got race, it's mm-hmm. got ethnicity, it's got everything. You know, up until they, they killed the, the personification of it, you know, uh, they, they, this was far and away, I think, the most powerful uh, propaganda tool anyone had, which I think explains George W. Bush's reluctance to kill Osama bin Laden. Um, I, I think now they've, they've killed him, but they have firmly established uh, the terrorist threat with or without him in, in people's minds.
0: Sure. Yeah. And now they're using his uh, compound as just this magical oracle that they can keep pulling information from that we'll never have access to or see firsthand. It's just like, well, there's evidence that he was still plotting, and he had an inter- integral role in Al Qaeda. It's like, okay, if you guys say so, then I guess it must be true. Um, David, your book—you know—you you, your book undermines basically the premises of every war, every major war of aggression in this in this country or every war quote-unquote of defense as well but i can't help but talk about 9-11 because with that that was really the crux of the neocon you know the aggressive imperialism that we're seeing in this never-ending war on terror what about that event do you think was uh, a lie or what or do you
2: think that at all
1: well, I, I mean, we could go for hours about the lies that have been <laughs> told about 9-11, um, the, you well, know, well, maybe, including... The,
2: maybe we should keep it to, what, like, what aspects... Because you, you the Iraq War inspired you to write your book. Um, you know, what aspects of the Afghanistan War do you think were outright lies, um, you know, maybe not going down the whole 9-11 truth rabbit
1: hole? Well, we know that... Uh, that the Taliban was willing to turn bin Laden over, at least to a third country, with no more conditions than that, uh, both before and after 9-11, to be put on trial. Mm. Uh, we, you know, they wanted uh, assurance of no death penalty. They wanted some sort of uh, evidence of 9-11 in, in the case of, of the negotiations after 9-11. Which we um,
2: saw live but- on TV, the, the press conference with the Taliban, explaining that.
1: Yeah, this is, this is not really in dispute. Uh, there, was, there was a decision made by George W. Bush that he would rather have a war. Uh, we did not want uh, to put bin Laden on trial, then or now. I mean, we knew for a fact now that they didn't want mm. a trial in which our support for him through the 1980s would come up, in which his grievances against the United States that merited, but of course could not begin to justify, uh, destroying buildings on 9-11 would come up uh, when the failures to uh, to capture him for the past decade would, would come up. Uh, and once you gave him a trial, look at the precedent. We've been talking about precedents. How would you explain not giving so many other people fair trials? And if you gave him a, a sort of a phony uh, kangaroo court trial, there would be all sorts of con- condemnations of the United States and and plus of course you would give everybody a heart attack in whatever state you imprisoned him <laughs> in with his magical murderous force and, and so uh so we we know that there were were interests in a natural gas pipeline through Afghanistan interests in placing weapons and bases in Afghanistan I mean none of this is secret it's just not talked about very much mm. we know that there were plans in place for invading Afghanistan which uh, it doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like in that there are plans in place for invading everywhere on earth <laughs> um, it, you know it, we we put so much effort into making these plans that it would be better spent making plans for the possibilities of peace and prosperity uh it doesn't mean that you know that we were going to go into afghanistan uh on the same date regardless of whether 911 happened and so forth Um, We also know, of course, that uh, very little was done to prevent 9-11 and that the president, among others, was explicitly warned uh, of the threat. Uh, We uh, can certainly suspect uh, that steps were taken uh, to allow it to happen, um, which certainly would not be above the the people we're talking about. Um, Right. But we, you know, we don't. We don't know, you know. We don't know exactly what happened, and mm-hmm. that uh, there's never been a serious investigation. There's been lots of lies and cover-ups, um, and you know, I don't, uh, I don't have to agree with, with popular theories of 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 conspiracies of, of what happened uh, to, uh, to agree that it there ought to. Uh, be an investigation, and in, in fact, there ought to be a criminal investigation, mm-hmm. and the thing ought to have been treated as a crime. You don't, you don't blow criminals up into uh, into superhero uh, rivals in a in a global war uh, without consequences that all benefit them and not us.
0: Right. It seemed like obstacles were almost moved out of the way in order to ensure that 9/11 happened, and it's just it's devastating when you look at. You know, when you just look at the evidence that's available, without even going into anything else, um, that's just how I see it. But yeah, I've heard you. I've heard you discussing the Kennedy assassination, and you agree that elements within the CIA actually assassinated Kennedy. Where do you think those people went? I mean, do you think that they've been kind of working behind the scenes for the last couple of decades, shrewdly guiding things, or do you think that it's more of just a power play where these people are recycled out? I mean, what do you what do you think about that?
1: Well, some, I, I mean, it certainly seems to be pretty well established uh, that that is what happened to Kennedy, that, that certain elements within the, the CIA and the military and recently within but relieved of all of, of their offices by Kennedy uh, were involved in that. And and the names include uh, the name George Bush, Sr., who went on to be uh, president. And, you know, he's, he's not really been in hiding. Um, but I, I think that since Kennedy, presidents have had a heightened awareness mm-hmm. uh, of the threat, um, and I think that you know there there has been uh, the possibility of of damage being done uh, to presidents ever since. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it, these are people who don't whose first tool is not usually a gun. Uh, you know, and when they negotiated with iran to not let the hostages out until carter was out of office and reagan was in uh... that was much easier uh... Than putting a bullet in in jimmy carter um... but the, the powers the powers that are there and remain you know very high profile uh... you know we continue with the, with largely the same officials uh... running the military and the cia you know from administration to administration um, but but others who are are not named and not as hope high profile remain as well. Much of the government stays there, uh, mm. regardless of president. Uh, and, and there's a great deal of power and a great deal of of information that can be used as power uh, there to the to the point where you have you know eight former heads of the CIA publicly telling President Obama not to prosecute anyone in the CIA for torture. And him right. saying, OK, I mean, we don't have to, you know, make up, you know, smoky dark room meetings uh, <laughs> when they're when they're doing this stuff publicly. Right. When the generals are telling the president how much to escalate the war in Afghanistan and the president is saluting the generals. Right? It's not it's not secret anymore. Uh, and, and to some people, just the fact that it's not secret anymore is an improvement. To, to my mind, right. it's, it's worse. It's worse because we, we're doing away with the pretense, even, <laughs> uh, of, of civilian command and democracy. Absolutely.
3: Um, were
2: you were you surprised? I know that uh, you know the Iraq War seems to get most of the focus from the anti-war movement, and it wasn't didn't seem to be until re- kind of recently, maybe the last three years, that Afghanistan started to really be a focus for people wanting you know to pull out and or, and things like that. Um, were you surprised um, that there there really never, even to this day, seems to be a a mainstream moral argument against invading Afghanistan? Um, It seems to, um, you know, it hinges on the fact that, well, they, you know, they agreed to give up Bin Laden, um, but we invaded them because we claimed they they wouldn't give him up. But just separate from that... um, What do you think about the moral implications of invading a country just to go after one man or supposedly a a group that are harboring there?
1: Well, a few years ago, uh, Italy, a wonderful country where I used to live, uh, convicted a couple of dozen U.S. CIA agents of kidnapping a man off the street in Italy and sending him to Egypt to be tortured. Uh, Convicted them in absentia. They are all living free uh, here in the United States, uh, as are convicted uh, terrorists uh, from South American and Cuban exploits uh, as are you know former and current presidents and top officials who've openly confessed to things like torture and assassination and aggressive war uh, if if you know one of these countries uh, if Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Cuba, you know, were to invade the United States, either with a death squad to, to take someone p- prisoner or to assassinate someone, uh, or, or an outright occupation of the United States. You, know, you would be hard-pressed to find a single individual anywhere in the United States, mainstream or otherwise, who would say, that's okay, that's legal, that's law enforcement, that's justice being served. Nobody. It's purely the double standard that allows mm. this. This is we're better than they are. We're whiter and taller and more educated, and we speak uh, English, and they speak some other lesser language. And we've got the right God, and they've got some other God that allows this.
2: American uh, exceptionalism.
1: Right. We're the exception. We have one one set of rules for for everybody else, uh, and, and a different one for us. Uh, and, and so to say it's okay to go and occupy Afghanistan and, and mm-hmm. kill thousands of civilians uh, and children and women and use white phosphorus and mm-hmm. use drones and, and, and all of the atrocities and the collection of, of fingers and the killing of, of Afghans for sport. It, this is okay because they're Afghans and we're Americans. Uh, you know, I, I think it's not really acceptable to a lot of people when they mm-hmm. stop and think about it uh... it but but when they put their faith in in their president whether it was bush or obama or for some people both uh, and say well they know better this is complicated we're in danger and they're doing what needs to be done and it's the department of defense and it wouldn't Mm -hmm. do anything that wasn't necessary and they blindly accept that and turn away and try not to see the blood uh... then you know then things get accepted but but i don't want to overstate this because two-thirds of Americans say get the hell out of Afghanistan right and and we ought to do so if we had a representative government
2: but do you think that that's from a moral perspective they're coming from I mean I know you can't speak for the entire population but <laughs> no, I can <laughs> <it>. <laughs> but, but I mean it, it seems like that it, that it only got to that point of dissent against the Afghanistan war because it seems like now it's actually being connected to people's tax tax dollars and things like that, that it's like a resource drain on our country. Um, but, yeah, that's just on a side note. I mean, I, I,
1: I, Yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to say, and it would be very mm. hard to really figure out with polls. I, I, I mean, certainly a majority wanted to go in there when, at, at the start, uh, and, and arguably by certain polling, a majority was happy to go into Iraq at, at the start, whereas now you have majorities of Americans who say we never should have gone into either place. It was a mistake. Oops. Uh, and, and and I think, you know, part of it has got to be, you know, the ongoing financial cost and uh, and, and the, uh, the possibility that, uh, you know, that it's that it's not really doing us much good. Um, but I but I think also Americans have wised up quite a bit uh, about wars in large mm-hmm. part because of the very high profile lies. Uh, in Iraq. You know, the the, the easily, immediately disprovable, we're going to find a lot of weapons and then you don't find them, uh, was a very bad move for proponents of, of wars, because it made people start questioning all sorts of things about wars. Uh, and it turned people against going into Iran, which there have been arguments, very similar arguments made right. for over the past several years.
0: Yeah, we've um, been doing a lot of saber-rattling with Iran. Um, One question about, you know, you're talking about WMDs and the double standard that we have, the American exceptionalism. I wanted to discuss the pre-propaganda that's instilled in our society in order for people to even think that we need to be invading countries that do have weapons of mass destruction for some reason. It's like, why don't we question the fact, why is that even a justification in itself? Even if they did have weapons of mass destruction, is that a reason to invade and occupy a country?
1: Right, because we have more weapons of mass destruction exactly. in this country than anybody else. Um, we have more weapons of mass destruction that we own stationed in in other people's countries right. than anybody else as well. But, but if you know, there, there's there's never been a, a legal or moral case made for uh, going to war against a country because it has weapons. If if that were the case and applied across the board. Uh, everybody could invade us. And of course, Mm. they can't and they shouldn't. Uh, And and so it takes a very clever sort of of propaganda that presents itself as a free and independent press to go to the public and say, here's the question on which whether we go to war will be decided. Does Iraq have lots of weapons or doesn't it? And if it does, we must go to war against them. And if it doesn't, then we can't uh, without anyone, as you say, stopping to question Hey, why do we get to bomb them if they have weapons? Right. You know, because that's, you know, not a legal justification for a war.
0: Absolutely. It seems like we have two sides talking about how to manage the empire and no one's talking about whether or not we need one.
1: No, very few people in Washington are. Uh, among the, the American public it's quite popular oh, sure, to sure. talk about dismantling the empire and the military and moving the funding elsewhere and it and, it, and it's it's made its way into the uh, proposals of the chairman of the president's deficit commission and the proposals from the, from the right-wing groups in Washington and the left-wing groups in Washington. I, I mean, just about everybody is talking about cutting the military and closing foreign bases and the rest of it, except for members of Congress and the president <laughs> and, the, and the Pentagon. Right. I mean, they, they, they're actually misleadingly talking about it. Uh, they're talking about cuts to the military, Whereas when you see the details, they just mean cuts to future budgets that they've dreamed about, so that even <laughs> after the cuts, the budget is actually bigger than the current one.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, what do you? How do you think the politics of fear play into just? Uh, you know, we're talking about how the, a lot of people that we're encountering don't support the empire, but for some reason, we, you know, many people that I talk to are. Sucked into that politics of fear, where they feel like the Democrats are on the right track, and they just feel like the Republicans are so scary, and fearmonger them into almost support. It's like good cop, bad cop almost. It's like they trust. They have this inherent trust in government. It's just an interesting thing. I mean, I guess I don't really have a question. It's just an interesting observation.
1: Well, fear is fear is a very very powerful uh, tool, and, and is probably the biggest. Uh, tool uh, uh, in in war propaganda and was mm. the biggest driver of, of public support uh, for george w Bush uh, who was you know quite unpopular and, and, and quickly become a failure as president right up until 9/11 uh, when he shot up to 90% popularity having done absolutely nothing <laughs> except be president when this country was was attacked by airplanes right, right? And, and and so uh, you know Fear can generate very strange reactions, including this sort of father figure worship. I mean, Giuliani wrote on the same thing there in mm-hmm. New York, uh, and, and you're absolutely right that in terms of the lesser evil trade offs of the two party system, uh, it, it, it what the Democrats will will tell you in most cases is not here's how good I am, here's what I'll do for you, uh, here's how much I'll listen to you and, and do what you want, uh, but. Look over there. Look at those, look at those horrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, th- there's been more on the so-called progressive media and progressive blogosphere. There has been more discussion of the Tea Party during the past two years uh, than of just about any progressive policy proposal you could name, uh, free education, mm-hmm. green energy, whatever. Um, because it, it it's it's much easier to say, well, who cares what we do? In fact, what we do might be 90% as bad as what they do or even worse than what they do. But look at them. Look how scary they are. Uh, and, and people believe they, have the, they are limited to those choices. And they, and they take that mentality even into primaries where you see a Democratic primary election, uh, like this past week in, in the 36th district in California, where progressives say, Oh well, let's look at three of the Democrats, and one of them's really, really bad, and one of them's really, really good. We don't want that. That's too good. We don't like ourselves that much. Mm-hmm. We'll go for the one in in the middle uh, and elect someone who's made no real commitments uh, to uh, to to peace or justice uh, in, in place of, you know, someone who would actually start to change Congress. Uh, I it, means it's just so ingrained in our habits of. Uh, of political thinking, and uh, and yes, as we mentioned, I've it, I, I've gone into elections where I uh, where I voted for a third party candidate, mm. uh, and I've gone into them where I voted for a for a lesser evil. You know, in mm. our in our most recent congressional election here in Virginia's fifth, uh, I had a choice between a lousy Democrat who who I had sworn I would oppose if he didn't stop funding these wars. Uh, and a lousy Republican. And I voted for a good third-party candidate who didn't stand a chance. Um, but we have to, again, get out of thinking that, you know, pulling a lever or pushing a button on election day sure. uh, it ranks anywhere near the top thousand things we should be uh, concerned with as, as active citizens.
0: Yeah, what kills me is the, the rhetoric is so juvenile. Like, we're we're sitting here talking about the propaganda and the the good versus evil, and the WMDs and all these catchphrases that have come out of of the last ten years—it just—I wish that the dialogue could be more realistic about why we are realistically going into these countries to control resources and whatnot, and and to just hammer down this this rhetoric is so insulting to my <laughs> and to, to people's intelligence. It's like, why are you talking about these people as if they're subhuman and evil? And I mean, it's so black and white. It's just—it's an absurd state of reality in terms of the media, the mainstream media. And you saw the GOP, um, the first debate for the GOP candidacy it was just a joke. I mean, every question was just, <laughs> it was just Uh-oh. like as if as if you, you're you an idiot for not supporting waterboarding, as if, you know, do you still think Obama's um, weak now that he killed bin Laden? It's like these are the kind of questions that they're leading the debate. You know, I mean, yes. it's just insane.
1: It's It's very, very frightening, which is a great benefit to... Democrats, how frightening it is, and Mm. and yet you'll have a chunk of the population supporting wars who who think like that, and who want Mm. to wipe those evil Muslims off the face of the earth, and you'll have another chunk of the U.S. population supporting the very same war and the very same uh, action uh, for the good of those poor people who don't know enough to want it, but really are going to benefit from what we're doing for Mm. their poor souls. Uh, and, and, And the rhetoric you heard this week from President Obama about the Middle East in his big speech was was beautiful. I, I mean, the the close of the speech was all about nonviolent activism and resistance and people's movements. Uh, and and I, I think he should stop and consider that some people might actually take that seriously. <laughs> Are
2: you talking about but, the um, the Arab Spring speech he just did? Because I didn't I didn't see that. Was that yesterday?
1: I, I am. It, it was today. Oh, it was we, today. Okay. Speak here and uh, and he. Um, he you know, he didn't mention Saudi Arabia. He barely mentioned Bahrain. I, I mean, more than I expected. Uh, he, you know, he, he he didn't he didn't come down with a serious change in in our actual policies of of funding and arming these dictators around the Middle East, and then switching sides when we have to. Uh, he, he but but the rhetoric was beautiful, uh, and you know, just as in his his deficit speech in his state of the union, you know, the 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 rhetoric is so clearly out of line with the actions. And and yet you will have people running off uh, just ecstatically happy. Uh, You know, the words speak louder than the actions for if you're an Obama supporter listening to Obama. So you can have, you know, a, a speech where you're where you're saying, let's cut taxes on corporations and all the rest of it. But but throw in some beautiful rhetoric about how evil the tea party is oh and you're you're golden uh and you talk about talk about support for nonviolence and human rights uh uh in the middle east uh and you know people like it i like it uh i like that rhetoric better than bush's rhetoric you oh, know no. <laughs> but where's the where's the action where's the where's the follow-through uh you know what why is Egypt going to get a, an, an extra $2 billion, uh, and does that have anything to do with them upholding the blockade of Gaza? You mm. know, when is Egypt going to get you know, the, the control over its country that would entitle its people to say, you know what, we don't want that dirty $2 billion. Mm. Uh, it, you know, we could use it, but we are better off without it, which is, you know, I think, actually the case.
2: Um You're speaking about how powerful his rhetoric is and how it's so good that it makes a lot of people actually not even pay attention to the the results or the outcome or the action. they, they latch onto his words um, and another example of that that I can think of, I still hear people actually say Obama gave us all health care, free health care. Yeah, I've heard um, that a right? lot and. And it's almost as if they weren't paying attention to anything but his rhetoric. Right. Um, and and I mean, you know, Kucinich is one of the only people, the only prominent politician who, um, who, who was against um, the the proposals that o- that Obama had eventually shaped. Um, you know, the health policy into. And I, I was always really curious about what conversation, what the <laughs> content of that conversation was that took place on that plane ride. Um, you know, where afterwards Kucinich changed his vote or changed his what how he was going to vote. Do you have anything to speak to you on that, or what do you, what do you think, Kevin?
1: <laughs> I, uh, I I spoke with Congressman Kucinich. You know, many I've spoken with him many times over over the years and about this issue. Mm-hmm. But I spoke with him before and after that, um, and uh, I, I I I don't really have any uh, any key revelation in terms of a, <laughs> of a trade off that was negotiated or or and i'm not keeping it secret from you i really don't Um, but i told him before and after and i said publicly uh... that it was the wrong thing to do uh... and that at the very least if he had to do it he should have held a press conference where instead of just coming out and parroting the rhetoric that he had been debunking for for months uh... and pretending like he now believed it uh... he should have come out and said I'm a member of the United States Congress, and I have no ability to communicate to my constituents in Ohio that can't be undone by the national uh, media's microphone coming out of the White House. I've got labor unions and senior citizens picketing my office because I'm anti-health care while I try to make a stand at the very least to permit states to give their citizens healthcare. This is what he, you know, this is what people hoped he would take a stand for mm. and win if he caved. That he would, that he would win something, not nothing, uh, and that what he would win would be reinstatement in the bill of what had he had passed in committee and, and been unceremoniously stripped out um, by Pelosi the, uh, waivers to allow states to do what Vermont is still currently trying to do against the odds, and that is put a civilized healthcare system like the rest of the world has in place. Uh, I mean, if, if, if you've been completely undone by a completely corrupt communication system that has convinced people who've known you for decades that up is down and black is white, uh, to not make that the issue... I, I think was a mistake,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, as I think caving in on that bill was a mistake, um, particularly in light of the fact that now uh, Congressman Kucinich may not have a district uh, to run in as, as a result of Republican redistricting of Ohio.
0: Oh, wow. Gerrymandering? Yeah, it's, uh,
2: it's, it's
0: funny so, that
1: – oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, every ten years they redraw the districts in every mm. state, and some states are, are are fairer about it than others. But in most, there's a, a, a bias in favor of, of of the party in charge of the, the legislature or the governor, uh, and in just about every case, there's a huge bias in favor of the two parties, mm. uh, a, a, as against you know the coherence of the district, and so you end up with yeah, gerrymandering, crazy shaped uh, districts that that guarantee the district to one of the two parties because of these cultural differences between the two parties uh and uh, and and so the elections become the primaries you know if if we want to elect anybody going forward who is any good if we think that's still worthwhile we're going to have to put good people up in democratic primaries in the democratic districts and republican primaries in the republican districts but you know when they redraw when they redraw the districts Uh, in all the states based on population, and some states have lost population and some have gained, um, but they're not enlarging the House, some states lose districts. Uh, And, you know, in Ohio, it's the Republicans drawing the districts and picking which districts are going to cease to exist, Uh, and one of those is likely to be Kucinich's
0: Yeah, it worries me, the whole health care thing, because I hear people say, well, he did it, he did, you know, he passed health care reform, and it's done. And that worries me that we can't ever go back and reform it and expand it and really fix that because it's very broken and we know just how shady it really was, the, the whole legislation that went through.
1: Um, well, I, I hate to be the one to say yes, we can, but yeah, yeah. you know I think we can do it state by state. This sure. is how Canada did it. Uh, and if Vermont can get it past Washington, D.C., you're going to see the other 49 states hustling to catch up.
0: Yeah, let's let's hope so because that's that's very important. And once again, we talk about we we're arguing about healthcare and about welfare and immigration. In reality, we should all be banding together to to fight these wars and to end this insane military spending, so we can actually apply these resources in our country. And the fact that that's the debate isn't even there. I mean, it is, but not necessarily in in the system that we're seeing with the politicians. You know, you've yeah. talked a lot about corporate per- personhood as well. Um, what does the the recent constitutional ruling about corporate personhood? What does that do for our rights and responsibilities? What about real human personhood? And how can we take back personhood for ourselves, as organic, social, sentient beings?
1: Well, we we lose out, right? It is a zero sum game. If you know, if the if the 400 people who have more money than you know half of the the country uh, have that much power the rest of us have very very little Uh, if corporations uh, with their incredible sums of money and international money uh, have the you know the human right to bribe our politicians to fund their elections uh, then we lose Uh, if corporations control the bulk of our communication system, at least through television, as really a quite small cartel does, uh, then we lose out. We don't. We don't have effective free speech, freedom of the press, freedom to know what our government is doing, uh, freedom to to vote for our choices and to and to run for office as candidates if we want to uh, under this system. I mean, anyone who's not fabulously wealthy or willing to cater to those who are can't credibly run for office uh, and when your choices are so limited you can't vote for anyone uh, who's actually going to represent you Um, you know how do we undo this We we either change the culture dramatically and and take over our government uh, sufficiently to to change how judges decide cases uh, and, and get some rulings that reverse rulings like the Citizens United one, mm-hmm. uh, or we rewrite our Constitution. Uh, and, you know, uh, this Constitution was, was groundbreaking two and a quarter centuries ago. It's way out of date. I, I mean, it's barely been tweaked. It, it needs to be. Uh, redone uh, and not just to, to go in there and state the obvious that people are people and corporations are corporations which y- you know is sort of crazy um, but but to establish rights that that were never dreamed of uh, when our Constitution was put in place and and, and to uh, to establish rights based on ways our society functions and technologies we use now that, that weren't there then, you know, you couldn't have the right to the videotape of your interrogation or, or mm. confession in the 18th century, uh, and, and, and so I, I would love to see us rewrite the Constitution, uh, and one of the ways to, to amend the Constitution is, is to start through the states and, and go around Congress, and it's never yet been done, um, but it could be done, it could be done uh, for individual amendments. Uh, and uh, it could be done without, uh, you know, without the danger that people fear of, of, of crazy amendments being packaged in with others mm-hmm. uh, if, we, if we did it right. Um, it, but it means really building the power in three quarters of the states uh, to make it happen outside of Congress.
0: I totally agree with you. You know, we need more state power. We need obviously more power on, in, on the community level. Bill Moyers quotes Ray Standard Baker in On America, talking about how politics is, quote, the method by which communities work out their common problems, which I really think is the crux of what's wrong with our political system now is that people don't engage on a community level and they just kind of get swept up into this, this election cycle on a federal level. I, I don't really know that many people that even take an interest in their local candidates.
1: Well, I agree. It's it's a problem, uh, and people uh, uh, obsess over what the, the national media tells them about their about their local affairs when it tells them anything. Uh, it, it's 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 a, a danger in having a nation this big, and some of the people who made it this big uh, made it so intentionally to make uh, to make popular control uh, of the government that much more difficult. Uh, it's it's hard for. For us to go and and shut down Washington D.C., which is just nowhere near where most of us uh, live, um, mm. it, it, and it's you know it's very very hard, not to say impossible, for someone to represent seven hundred thousand people as as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives is supposed to do. Um, and once you've transferred all the power from there to to the president, it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, I, I mean. What's, what's going to be the point of electing pro-peace members of Congress uh, after next week uh, if presidents legally have the power to make wars regardless of Congress? Um, I, I mean, you would we would have to put in place uh, a, a Congress willing to repeal that law and repeal the War Powers Act and, and legislate what the Constitution said in the first place. Um, and, and, you know, we're we're a long ways from that at this point but we can move things in that direction fairly quickly just as people moved things quickly in Tunisia and Egypt if we uh, if we set our mind to it
0: so David what are you working on now um, in terms of campaigns or writings or anything like that and where can people find out more about you
1: I'm working on all the kinds of things we've been talking (laughs) about and uh, uh, you can go to davidswanson.org, uh, which is my blog. You can go to warisacrime.org, uh, which is where I, I blog with a bunch of other people. Uh, and uh, my new book, War is a Lie, is, is on both of those websites, but you can go straight to it at warisalie.org.
0: And you can get the PDF copy and also an audio version, which is what I actually did. It was really great to hear you reading it.
1: Yes, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So everyone, go check that out. And any last statements, David, before we end the interview?
1: Uh, thank you for what you're doing. This is this is what we need to do is to is to communicate uh, what people are thinking uh, around the country because we are we are so often misled about what uh, about what our neighbors think and the, mm. and and about the the extent to which our common sense views are are strange fringe socialist position, uh, when a majority of us actually tend to think in the in the same direction.
0: Well, thank you, David, for all of your work. Uh, you're an exceptional person, and we just love what you do, and we're big supporters of your work. Thank you so much. We're in solidarity to, to bring, you know, end this imperialism. So thanks a lot. You'll be hearing from us you. soon. Thanks, David. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too.
2: Thanks for listening to our interview with David Swanson. This Media Roots podcast is the product of many long hours of hard work and love. If you want to encourage our voice, please consider supporting us as we continue to speak from outside party lines. If you donate, we want to thank you with your choice of art from abbymartin.org, as well as music from recordlabelrecords.org. Much of the music you hear on our podcast comes from my own imprint, Record Label Records. And Abby's art reflects the passion and perspective that led her to create Mediaroots.org. With a $40 donation, you will receive one 8x10 art print from abbymartin.org and one Record Label Records CD or Vino release. With an $80 donation, you'll receive two 8x10 art prints and two music releases. With a $150 donation, you'll receive four 8x10 art prints and four music releases. Even the smallest donations are appreciated and help us with our operating costs. Thank you so much for your support.